We're going to have another Bible reading, and it's in 2 Timothy chapter 3 to chapter 4, verse 5. So if you want to take out your Bibles and look up 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's on page 1156 in the Pew Bible. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women, who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning, but never able to come to knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambers opposed Moses, so also these teachers opposed the truth. There are men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far, because as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings, what kinds of, thing, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Chapter 4. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. And may God bless his word to each one of us.
Thank you, Eunice. You may have noticed that living as a Christian these days is not so easy. It's certainly not easy to raise a Christian family, and it's not likely to get any easier in the future. If I read my Bible correctly, and especially the New Testament, it promises to get harder still. Constantly, we're bombarded with messages that we deserve more and better. It's good to finally focus on ourselves. After all, we've sacrificed enough. It's time we've gotten our way, our due. We've worked hard, and now it's time to reap our reward, our just desserts. We're conditioned hardly even to notice these days that all of these statements, quite common and even normative these days, are in direct opposition to the biblical Christian gospel. One of our biggest contemporary temptations seems to be unconscious or at least inattentive assumptions that even we Christians are right and deserve to do less with more that is contributing less toward the interests of others while keeping more for ourselves. Giving less of ourselves while expecting more for ourselves. Committing to less while acquiring more. These incessant messages in our world by which we and our children and for sure our children's children are going to be bombarded they eventually have their effect and their influence. And if that wasn't enough, the church also is divided in large measure according to these lines, and our message is muddled. It's even harder, really, on every level to be Christians and Christian families growing in grace and devotion to our Savior Jesus Christ as Lord, and that devotion expressed by a corresponding growth in devotion to the Bible as the revealed, authoritative, written word of God. Being a church made up of such folks is also not at all easy these days. We may hear something like, nobody wants to hear that. Even fewer want to do that, order our lives according to what must be by now an obsolete and irrelevant book. Get with the program, brother. Get with the time, sister. Either that or be left behind by those jumping on the post-Christian, post-church, post-gospel, post-heaven, post-hell, post-God bandwagon. Our brother Neil often reminds us of Jesus' solemn promise. In this world, you will have trouble. That's John 16.33, the words of Jesus. You may have noticed a similar promise in this morning's scripture that Eunice just read. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Neither of these are promises we want fulfilled in our lives, and certainly not in the lives of our children or our children's children, but there they are nonetheless. 
Jesus also promised it will get progressively more difficult, even for his true followers, to hang on to faith and joyful devotion. As the days get darker and his day approaches. Matthew records Jesus speaking explicitly to the circumstances that will be the norm as his day comes, the day of his glorious return and judgment. In chapter 24 of Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, verse, starting with verse 10, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Verse 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Verse 14, and the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Those are the words of Jesus, Matthew chapter 24, verses 10 to 14. The gospel of Luke in chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, teaches us something very similar. Reading from verse 1, And Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. That last phrase is very important. And not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected mankind. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect humankind, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord Jesus said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Putting together these and many other similar passages of Scripture, we, we come easily to a thoroughly biblical conclusion, namely, that it will be more and more difficult for us to be biblical Christians who gather to form biblical Christian churches as the days get darker and as the day of the Lord approaches, the day of his glorious return and of judgment. So as it gets incrementally harder to conduct transparently biblical, Christ-centered and Christ-formed lives, will be more easily tempted to give up, to give in, and to give out. And this certainly seems to be happening during this time of COVID interruption. This also seems to be true for individual Christians, for families, and for Christian churches. This is the stark and prophetic meaning of Jesus' words, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? 
One of the many aspects of this that I did not anticipate is that Christians within churches and church to church could turn against each other. If not in open conflict, then in mistrust, in acrimony, in estrangement, in suspicion, in frustration, and in division, not over doctrine, but over politics and politicians, over COVID and COVID policies, over vaccines or not vaccines. So again, the church's message is muddled. Now that hasn't happened only recently. It's been that way for centuries on some level, but it's gotten worse, I think. I don't want to be the harbinger of bad and scary news, but if we can't navigate this, if we can't endure what's going on these days, we have no chance to endure to the end. But to be as fair as we possibly can be, being biblical Christians and a biblical Christian church has always been a hard sell in every time and in every place. The thing that seems to have changed ominously is the value, the relevance, even the viability of our persisting as biblical Christians and a biblical Christian church is in question in the church. Now, because you're a brighter congregation than most, you will have picked up on the trend toward a particular theme by now, a theme underlying our ministries of worship and word this morning. That theme is the proper place of the Holy Scriptures in the lives of true Christians, true Christian families, and especially in the life and ministries of Jesus's church. This morning, I'd like to ask you to join me in considering a new series of sermons and worship themes, which I've entitled, Biblical Christians, Who Are We? A sermon series on biblical Christian identity, practice, and purpose. And this morning, part 1A is entitled, We Are Grace Gifted Bible People. Before I go on, I'd like to ask you to pray with me. Let's pray for just a moment. Lord God, as we continue on here in the ministry of your word, we do pray that you would speak. Speak, Lord, through your written word that we have here before us. We are so blessed and altogether grateful for the word that you have spoken through your servants and had them write it down and preserved it for us so that we can refer back to it over and over again, that we can be built up by it, that we can be grown by it, we can be conformed in the image of Christ by it, and also your spirit that binds us together first with you. Our fellowship is with God and his son and with each other. And you have spoken by your word through your spirit as well. And we ask you to do that here this morning, whether it be from the text or from the words that I speak, Lord, we pray that you would be faithful to your word, to let it go out and to let it not return to us without any productivity, but that it would take root and bear fruit, that we might be more like Jesus to fulfill your purpose for us, that you 
created us to image you, the one true and living God, and bear your image on the earth and represent you on it. That promise, that purpose has never been rescinded. In fact, it has been doubled upon that we are now being recreated to be conformed to the image of your revealed Son, Jesus Christ. In fact, it's our destiny, for we have been predestined for that purpose according to your word. So I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us this morning, and we will give you all the glory. We pray that it will be for the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. There will be no singing in the conduct of this sermon. Yet another problem of having a fantastic associate pastor who could sing too? Come on. You know? I do bring lyrics of a so- song, though. Those of a certain age will remember the so-called supergroup, Supertramp. My favorite Supertramp song, oh, well, one of two, is the logical song. It goes like this. I've abbreviated it a little bit, but uh, it goes like this. When I was young, it seemed that life was so wonderful, a miracle. Oh, it was beautiful, magical. And all the birds in the trees, well, they'd be singing so happily, so joyfully, playfully watching me. But then they sent me away to teach me how to be sensible, logical, oh, responsible and practical. And they showed me a world where I could be so dependable, oh, clinical, oh, intellectual, a cynical. Then the haunting refrain, there are times when all the world's asleep, the questions run too deep for such a simple man. Won't you please, please tell me what we've learned? I know it sounds absurd, Please tell me who I am. I said, watch what you say or they'll be calling you a radical, a liberal, oh, fanatical, a criminal. Won't you sign up your name? We'd like to feel you're acceptable, respectable, oh, presentable, a vegetable. Revised refrain. But at night, when all the world's asleep, The questions run so deep for such a simple man. Won't you please tell me what we've learned? I know it sounds absurd. Please tell me who I am. Who I am. Who I am. Who I am. And the last despairing line of the song from 1979 is, it's getting unbelievable. Many more things have gotten unbelievable since then, including the biblical, historical, orthodox, Christian story, philosophy, theology, faith, life, and lifestyle. We'd be hard-pressed to define what these are today, even in and for the church. Who are we? A couple of Sunday nights ago, I saw a 60 Minutes interview of author Danny Shapiro, 
and an abbreviated retelling of her personal story, recounted in her book, Inheritance, a memoir of genealogy, paternity, and love. After comparing her genetic profile to that of her older half-sister, she found out as a midlife 50-something adult that they aren't sisters. The deeper implication for her was that the man she'd known all her life as her daddy and who'd been killed in a car crash when she was 23 years old was not her biological father. So the strong Jewish heritage by which she'd lived and breathed and found her core identity as a human being wasn't either, at least not in a biological, historical, or factual sense. Her 2019 book is Danny Shapiro's eloquent telling of this significant and excruciating part of her personal story, as well as that of her family. This is how she opens. When I was a girl, I would sneak down the hall late at night once my parents were asleep. I would lock myself in the bathroom, climb onto the Formica counter, and get as close as possible to the mirror until I was nose to nose with my own reflection. This wasn't an exercise in the simple self-absorption of childhood. The stakes felt high. Who knows how long I kneeled there, staring into my own eyes. I was looking for something I couldn't possibly have articulated, but I always knew it when I saw it. If I waited long enough, my face would begin to morph. I was 8, 10, 13, cheeks, eyes, chin, and forehead. My features softened and shape-shifted until finally I was able to see another face, a different face. What seemed to me a truer face, just beyond my own. My features softened and shape-shifted until finally I was able to see another face, a different face, what seemed to me to be a truer face just beyond my own. Friends, this is something like I hope for us from our new sermon series. But we won't be looking into the mirror of our own reflections. We'll be looking into the mirror of God's word, illumined by God's spirit, to see who he's creating or perhaps even recreating us to be in the very image of God's Son. The first step, or or the first building block, or the first stop in this renewed or perhaps reiterated sense of our biblical Christian identity, practice, and purpose is accepting the clear and historically orthodox Christian teaching that we are grace-gifted Bible people. Every word of that phrase is essential. We are grace-gifted Bible people. So what I hope we'll see in our biblical text, you've already seen as our central truth that I made reference to earlier in our service. Here it is. So just since you've got it there in front of you, 
I'll just read it one time. The 66 books of Christian scripture, Genesis to Revelation, illumined by the Holy Spirit, and informed by church history, forms the authoritative basis of our Christian faith and practice. By God's sovereign and saving grace, and therefore, our identity in Christ. This is precisely where the Holy Spirit goes as he closes his second letter of Paul to young Pastor Timothy of the church at Ephesus. Some scholars even suggest this ought to be understood as Paul's third letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy being the first that he wrote clearly before 2 Timothy. The, the book of, that we have now of Ephesians to Pastor Timothy and his church, probably written between them. And then 2 Timothy that was written clearly as Paul came to the end of his ministry and his life. Fairly late in my preparations for this morning, I felt like I needed to, to back up and take a bit of a smaller bite from the text. Especially with the additional time I took to introduce the sermon series here at the top. So I split this sermon into two parts, part 1B next week, so that means shorter this week, hopefully. Let's give some brief but dedicated attention to verses 10 through 15. I'm in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we'll concern ourselves this morning primarily with verses 10 through 15, where the Holy Spirit speaks through Paul, both gently and boldly, to young Pastor Timothy and to us, by the way to remember and not forget what's of first importance to a living Christian faith, namely the authoritative source of our common faith and hope in Jesus Christ and from whom we received such a confident faith. Now, the first thing that I'd like for us to process this morning, we might call it our first major truth from the Bible, is this. It's number one. We'll see it here in verses 10 through 11. Grace-gifted Bible people. Grace-gifted Bible people understand and accept. Those two things are very important. Understand and accept that we have become the stewards of the biblical Christian faith and practice that we have received. Grace-gifted Bible people understand and accept that we have become the stewards of the biblical Christian faith and practice that we have received. Let's look at verses 10 and 11. Paul, by the Spirit here, speaking to young Pastor Timothy at the church at Ephesus. You, however, I, I won't get on my Sude sermon here, but I'll just remind us that there's a little phrase made up of two two-letter words, Sude in Greek, that means... Essentially, contrary to everything else I just said, and, and you heard Eunice read these first nine verses where, there, where the Spirit was warning about all of the disruption and all of the division and all of the dissatisfying things that would be going on in the church, right, as the days grew near. And in verse 10, but you... Now, the ESV has you, however, it's a little softer, but the intention here in the text is, but you. In contrast to that, but you do something different. In fact, the opposite of what I've just said. You, however, Timothy, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, 
my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. And I just want us to get this as we continue on. I want us to get that there's a contrast that's being drawn here, a clear, stark contrast between what some people are doing and how how things are going in some places and indeed in some churches in the latter days, Timothy's model is the opposite of that, and it's against the grain. It's against the flow. He is the literal salmon going upstream, hopping over the barriers. Grace-gifted Bible people understand and accept that we have become the stewards of the biblical Christian faith and practice that we have received. Paul gave to Timothy what had been given to him by the Holy Spirit. It was then up to Timothy to give to whomever the Holy Spirit was drawing to God in Christ Jesus there in Ephesus what had been given to him. And that pattern continues all the way to us in the year 2022 at Bethesda Church in Winnipeg, Manitoba. There is a holy chain of custody that runs from the Old Testament law through the writings and the prophets through the New Testament Gospels, the Acts, the Letters, and the Apocalypse, and through centuries of Gospel preaching and Bible teaching right up to our time and place. And we have now become, Bethesda, the stewards of biblical Christianity. Not only us, but certainly us in part. It's not altogether up to us, but it is in some part up to us. Just as surely as it was up in some part to young Pastor Timothy and the church at Ephesus. How have we done? How are we doing? How will we do? The question of the biblical Christian faith has never been, listen to me, The question of the biblical Christian faith has never been, how many people can we gather together in one place and call it church? Never. The question of the biblical Christian faith has been and will always be, how faithfully are we stewarding the biblical Christian gospel in our time and place? Because you see, grace-gifted Bible people understand and accept that we have become the stewards of the biblical Christian faith and practice that we have received. Well, there's a second thing here in this text, I think, that we could benefit from hearing and applying and processing it further. How does this further apply to us? How does this answer the question, who are we as biblical Christians? It's, the Number two is this, grace-gifted Bible people also understand and accept that we will incur costs for our faith and practice. Grace-gifted Bible people also understand and accept that we will incur costs for our faith and practice, some small, some great, yet we do not give up hope. Verses 11 through 13, it's overlapping a little bit. From verse 11, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, and he's talking about 
about um, Timothy following and sharing his persecutions and sufferings that happened to him at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, here's the verse, the promise, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. We do no one any good, least of all ourselves and our loved ones, to soft sell the Christian faith and life as a self-improvement or a self-help or even a group talk therapy course. If you're wondering what any of those things are, please see Dr. Ian Mogilevsky and he'll set you on the proper biblical Christian path and away from those pretenders to faith. But to be honest, these broadly describe much of the so-called Christianity we find out there in the world, and I emphasize in the world, and church today, and especially on TV. There's even a name for it. Uh, you Look it up. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism, and while it uses many of the same Christianese terms and sounds like kind of the real thing, it bears little resemblance to biblical Christianity. Now, such approaches might well work in the short term to help people feel better or better about themselves, but they will not stand real challenges, real suffering, or real persecution, because such faith isn't, and it will be exposed as inadequate to save or to stand. We also do no one any good to practice a Christian religion as one among many equally valid options that we and our children and our children's children could choose from. If from the beginning that had been what Christianity was, merely a new religion among other religions, it wouldn't have made it out of the first century. No, the true Christian faith and life promises eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ, but not an easy life. In fact, the promise is of a hard life compared to other people. How are we doing? How have we done? How will we do? I hear Jesus. But when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Those who endure to the end will be saved. Because you see, grace-gifted Bible people also understand and accept that we will bear costs for our faith and practice. Some small, some great, yet we do not give up hope. Finally, our third and last truth from this text that I think we could benefit from chewing on a bit is this. Grace-gifted Bible people understand and accept that the most good, the most right, the most true, And the most loving thing we could ever do, and most of all in our own families, is to hand down our true and living biblical Christian faith 
to those Jesus entrusts to us. This is perhaps the most difficult truth of all from our sermon this morning, as well as perhaps all the sermons in this series. And we'll come back to it. It's difficult because it puts the onus on each and every one of us biblical Christians and not just the gospel preachers and not just the Bible teachers. But this is also the very point at which we'll receive the most opposition, certainly from without and quite likely also from within. But handing down the biblical Christian faith, full of faith and hope without wavering, is the most good, right, true, and loving thing we can do. Many, perhaps most, believe that's the least good, the least right, the least true, the least loving thing we could do. Because the most good, the most right, the most true, and the most loving thing we could do, according to them, is to believe whatever they believe. And to love and live as they love and live. Or, short of that, just leaving them alone to do what they want. Now, there's nothing in the biblical Christian faith, nothing in the Bible, and nothing in the fruit of the Spirit that require or even allow for us to beat people over their proverbial heads with the Bible or to harangue them constantly with our version of the, of the gospel, we must love, and we've missed that terribly. We are indebted, however, to the one who saved us to give a good testimony for the hope that is within us. If indeed we have persevered, and preserved our hope in Jesus Christ. This is the biblical Christian line of succession. One person to the next, especially parents to children, and one generation to the next in the church. It's not only how the biblical Christian faith and life has survived through the centuries, it's how it will, will, will thrive even today. It's how it will thrive today. Truly, the only question for us here at Bethesda is this. Will we pass on the biblical Christian faith and life to those who will succeed us? Or will we allow this line of succession to die out? Will we be part of its resurgence? Or will we be part of putting it to bed? Because you see, Grace-gifted Bible people understand and accept that the most good, the most right, the most true, and the most loving thing we could ever do, and most of all in our own families, is to hand down our true and living biblical Christian faith to those Jesus entrusts to us. Now, I have a bit of a confession to make as we close. I've been holding out on you just a bit. There's another few verses that tie this whole thing together and make perfect sense. And they come in the first chapter of 2 Timothy. So please turn there with me. It's just probably one, one page back. I'll begin reading at verse 3, and I'll conclude our sermon today with verse 14. Listen to these words of truth and life. Paul, by the Spirit, speaking to Timothy about Timothy, his life, his family, 
and his ministry. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you, to us. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we come humbly before you once again, full of fear and full of doubt, but also, I think, full of love and hope and faith. But as I said earlier, our message is mumbled. It's also in many ways muzzled. And muddled. Help us to speak clearly. Help us to love as clearly as we speak, perhaps even more so. Help us to get it where it is the true biblical, Christian, faith, and life. To speak it and to live it, to pray it, and to fulfill it. In Jesus, and in Jesus' name. Amen. I shared with you in my weekly letter this week, that the passage that Yuri preached last week was, is one of my favorites. And I'd like for us to have these words in our, in our minds as we leave here. I just left my reading glasses on the, on the bench, so I'll labor through it. 
Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be revealed to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your, all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with, punishable, not with perishable things, but as but such as, such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for, sincere, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another and earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all, glory, and, and all, is, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass, grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Lord, may this word be true for us, that we recognize your word as good news, as life, as truth. And we allow you, Jesus, to bear your fruit in us, among us, and through us. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you all very much. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time.